Welcome to the Data Bites podcast by Women in Data, where we give you your weekly bite-sized dose of career development advice, industry case studies, and career stories to help you excel in your data career. Avi Gesser is partner in the data strategy and security practice at Debbie Voice in Plimpton. He advises companies on privacy, cybersecurity, and artificial intelligence matters, including incidents response and data minimization. He's also the primary author for the firm's data blog and architect of the firm's data portal. From 2010 to 2013, Avi was the counsel to the chief of the Justice Department, Criminal Division's fraud section. Thanks so much for joining us. I have been really looking forward to this conversation because it's so nice to have people in different disciplines, but also work in the field of AI, bring in their perspectives. So this has been a conversation I've been looking forward to for a while. And so I want to just dive right in and start to talk about, as a lawyer, what are some of the problems and questions you're answering around the risk of AI? Uh, great question. Thank, thanks, Sadie, for having me. I'm really happy to be here. I've been looking forward to this as well. Um, so I think um, for for me, and I'm, again, speaking only for me and not, not for my firm, but um, we are seeing a lot of really interesting issues come up with respect to AI for our clients. So just to take a step back, our clients are um, a lot of banks, insurance companies, um, large corporates and are using AI to help them screen resumes um, to see who to interview, uh, to assess uh, credit, so for loan applications, uh, for insurance, to see who should uh, be receiving insurance. And we originally started doing this work to, on the cyber side to look at the security of the data sets the models, I mean, a lot of these models have a lot of very sensitive information and are you know, good targets for a cyber attack, but then started looking more at the privacy issues. So do you have the right to use the data that you're using for this purpose? So you may have a lot of resume data that you were able to get because your people are applying for jobs. It doesn't necessarily mean you're entitled to take that resume data and dump it into your AI tool um, as a training set. And then there's the AI-specific issues, which are um, explainability, like if someone is denied a loan um, and you have to explain to them why they were denied a loan, can you, from the AI tool, explain what it was that was the key factor in the decision? Um, transparency, do people even know that these decisions are being made by AI? And then bias risk, so do the data sets themselves lend um, to at least arguments that uh, the decisions are being made on impermissible grounds and what can you do to make sure that the data and the AI and the process that you're following um, can't be criticized as being you know, a proxy for some protected class or have some kind of bias that's inappropriate. So where do you see the largest amount of discrimination happening with AI models today? I mean, you've mentioned a couple of use cases, but is there one surprising area that when you started to dive into this space a little bit more, you're like more people should be aware of this than the standard, you know, visual recognition systems that we hear about all the time? 
Right. And, and you're right that when people think about bias um, and discrimination, they often think about, uh, you know, facial recognition. But I think, I mean, in the insurance industry, let's say there's a, certainly a lot of risk um, of, of bias. And, and, and let me explain how that works is, you know, insurance is inherently discriminatory, right? Some people are going to get insurance, some people aren't. And so um, the alternative data and the AI allows you to look at a whole bunch of factors for who's a good insurance bet that you may not have been able to look at traditionally. Whether those are causal connections or whether they correlate to some other factor is sometimes hard to tell. And in insurance, you're not allowed to consider certain factors in deciding whether to give someone insurance. So you can't consider race, you can't consider gender, you can't consider um, whether someone's a victim of domestic violence. Uh, and so, you know, if, for example, you are deciding whether someone should be insured based on the kind of computer they use, so whether they use a Mac or a PC, or what kind of coffee they drink, whether they drink Dunkin' Donuts or Starbucks, mm -hmm. it's hard to know why that's a valid factor. Is that a factor because the people who drink Dunkin' Donuts eat a lot of Dunkin' Donuts and Dunkin' Donuts aren't that good for you over the long term if you eat a ton of them? And therefore, you know, that may increase your risk and maybe that makes you less of a candidate for life insurance. Or it could be that, you know, Starbucks are in affluent white neighborhoods and, and really it's a proxy for race or income or some other issue. And so what you, what you have is a lot of opportunity to use new data and new tools for insurance, but you have to be careful that you understand why you're using the data, what it's telling you, and whether or not it, it's a proxy for something that you really shouldn't be considering. Yeah, so you hit on a couple of things that are at home to me because I worked in the insurance industry for a while. And one of the things is just in regards to how many underlying layers there are and what we're putting into the data, right? With the example of Starbucks versus Dunkin' Donuts, from a data scientist perspective, that doesn't seem very harmful to use what type of coffee one may drink in their model. And I think a lot of times we, as data scientists, like to throw the blame on other people for using it, right? I was just using coffee as a predictor, as an indicator. I wasn't using race or gender, et cetera. But who is really responsible in scenarios like this? Is it the data scientists, is it the business leaders? Who's responsible in these scenarios? Well, I mean, it's, it's a tough question because, you know, in cyber, which is sort of where, you know, my governance and policies and procedure training you know, started and most of my work had been, it's a little bit easier. There's There are people who are, you know, responsible for cybersecurity and 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 then everybody else supports them. For AI regulatory compliance, it very much depends on the organization and why people are being asked to do what they're being what they're being asked to do. But I think what I would say is the data scientists should understand what it is their models are doing and how their inputs and their analysis is affecting the models 
and be looking for places where the data that they're pulling is showing a correlation that they don't necessarily understand as being causal and at least flagging for people. So for example, let's say you were doing life insurance you were, and you were building a model and you were scraping data and dumping it into this tool and it found that what radio station you listened to actually had some high correlation with whatever predictive outcome you're looking for, for risk for life insurance. You may ask yourself, well, why would that be, right? And maybe it's actually not the radio station you're listening to, but maybe it's that correlates with race or, or gender or sexual orientation. And it's that that's actually pick, being picked up. And those are things that you're not allowed to consider. And so hopefully whoever's designing the model and the regulatory compliance people or the ethical AI people who are overseeing it are looking out for those issues. But you know, one of the things we like to do is provide this kind of training for everybody involved in the entire life cycle of an AI project. So everyone is looking out for them because, you know, for resume, resume screening, for example, right? We had someone on our team who identified a, an input that they thought was suspect, which was travel. You know, do you want to include travel as being an input in a resume screening tool? And, you know, they pointed out that that seems to be something that may be correlated with income and race in a way that we don't want to correlate for, for a resume mm -hmm. screening tool and we should take it out and taking it out, you know, actually had a big impact on the results in terms of the number of uh, minorities that were, it was screening out. And it's a good example of why you want a diverse team of people at various points in the process to be looking out for these issues. Cause they may spot things that, you know, may seem facially neutral, but from their own experience would be something that they would flag as being suspect and needs, um, you know, more of a, more scrutiny. So do you think we're doing ourselves a bit of disservice by almost a data scientist relying on our statistics a bit too much in terms of when we produce a model, statistically speaking, we may have a great model, right? But then at the end of the day, we may not understand it. We have indicators like travel, as you mentioned, or the coffee you're drinking, or, you know, could be countless, right? Where we know it adds to our models and is a great predictive indicator. But if we don't truly understand the value of it, are we doing more harm than good by just relying on our model performance metrics and statistics versus relying on how much we actually understand our models? I mean, I think it depends a little bit on what the model is being used for and how, how risky it is. I mean, if the model is designed to, you know, optimize where on the web page an advertisement goes, or it's for, you know, a spam filter or certain things like that, it may not matter that much. I think you have to, you know, appreciate, is the model going to potentially negatively, negatively impact people? And are the inputs that we're using the kind of inputs that could negatively impact people based on criteria that we don't want to be using? Um, and therefore, you know, do we need to be careful about what we refer to as proxy discrimination, where 
although we can't directly consider this particular criteria because the AI is good at finding patterns, are we indirectly finding the same criteria? So take victims of domestic violence, for example, right? So for policy reasons, you can understand why you would not want to allow that to be a basis for insurance. But from the insurance point of view, I mean, people who are victims of domestic violence may turn out to be bad insurance risks. And so if you're not careful, right, the AI may pick up a whole bunch of indicators that indirectly find those people anyway. And so you have to be thinking about that issue, but it doesn't apply to all models and it doesn't apply to all use cases and it doesn't apply to all inputs. And so you don't want to be overly prescriptive and say, oh, for every model and every input, you've got to do bias testing. And But asking the questions and thinking about it will help you identify that risk in the places where it could arise. So for companies who are doing this well, the companies that you don't have problems to go unravel, right? What are what are you seeing them do differently than other companies in terms of managing the risk of AI? So I think, and here the experience that I had with cyber is quite helpful, which is companies who are really doing well here aren't thinking about AI as being a tech issue. Mm. A, a lot of companies think this is complicated, this is tech, we'll leave it to the tech folks, and it's all sort of data scientists and very technical people up and down throughout the entire um, sort of governance structure. And and it's treated like other models. And so the, the analysis of risk is, does the model do what it's supposed to do? What's the risk of the model drifting? What's the risk that the model is going to break in some ways and so forth, as opposed to thinking about this in a non-technical way, which is, you know, like any other risk that the company faces, you know, what's the worst case scenario? How risky is this model? What are we concerned about in terms of even if the model behaves exactly as it's supposed to, that we've designed the model properly or that the data we're inputting into the model isn't representative or is somehow you know, not consistent or that we haven't anticipated some issue that is going to cause us problems. So you know, one of the models that have got, got, got in trouble was a model that was designed to figure out who should get extra medical care where, when they're in the hospital. And, and that was depends on how sick you were when you got to the hospital. But how sick you were when you got to the hospital was dependent on how much insurance you had spent on healthcare in the last six months. And so African-Americans who traditionally have been, you know, had a, a more difficult time accessing health insurance, whether they were sick or not, because they were not getting the same level of insurance for healthcare were being treated as though they were not sick when a lot of, a lot of people were, were very sick. And so the model worked exactly as it's supposed to. It was just designed poorly and the, the poor design had a racial impact. And so I think, you know, you have to be thinking about these kinds of issues when you're designing the model, when you're running the model, when you're operating the model and so forth. And that requires, I think, 
infrastructure and, and governance in the organization where you have somebody with a regulatory compliance ethics focused involved in the design and in the oversight and, and, and people in the organization who are not technical, you know, asking basic questions and kicking the tires to see, you know, where this could go wrong, not just from a technical point of view. So if it's looked at not as just a technical issue, right? But a lot of our listeners are data scientists, so they're working in a technical space. What advice do you have for them in terms of reduce, reducing risk and increasing fairness? Because obviously there's a lot more parties that need to be involved here, but is that just raising your hand and kicking and screaming? Or what's a productive way to go about reducing that risk and increasing fairness? I mean, I think asking questions about, you know, why why are we considering the, this data set? What is it designed to do? What, what's the goal of the model? Um, are there any inputs um, that are prohibited um, from a regulatory point of view or just from a reputational point of view? Is there anything that we would, would not want to consider and, and ask, could any of these inputs be proxies for those inputs where we're sort of indirectly doing what we, 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 we don't want to be doing directly. Uh, and, and I think not assuming that the people who are designing the program have thought through all these issues, right? There may be um, a lot of things that come up during the design and training phase where there are choices that have to be made about about inputs and waiting and so forth, and 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 flagging. Hey, listen, you know, I don't understand why this particular input should be having the effect that it does, and I wonder if it's if it's really a proxy for some other input. And you know, does that matter? Do we care about that? Should we investigate that further? So shifting gears a little bit, I think we've got some great advice on what we can do as data scientists in this space, but would love to know how you got into this space and what was your journey into getting to what the work you're doing today? So, as I said, I, I was doing cyber before that I was just, you know, a regular white collar lawyer helping companies with various compliance programs. I have a chemistry background, so um, it's not directly applicable, but so tech science issues um, were things that I didn't find terribly intimidating um, as a lawyer. And so uh, I tended to gravitate towards uh, science and, and tech issues. And so when cyber became something of interest for lawyers, uh, I, I started doing more and more of it. And, and then, you know, protecting data became, you know, thinking about managing data and where the data should be and why do companies have it and ai just became sort of a, an obvious thing to spend time on because so much of the protecting of data that we were doing were for big data projects and and we started to ask well why do we need all this data what we're we using for and and do do we want the risk of having this data, what's the upside value of having this data, considering the downside privacy and cyber risk of having it. And so it became part of what we call our overall data management uh, practice. 
So it seems like you got into this area because you ask a lot of questions and are quite a curious individual. It led you down the rabbit hole into this space. Do you find that you're innately curious and this has just been a trait of yours or is this something that you've worked on and have found benefits from having this deep curiosity? Um, I think I'm naturally curious, but I think being a good lawyer is about being curious. Um, you know, the practice I have today is something that didn't exist five years ago. And um, I think for, for, for lawyers and, and, and really for, for all professionals, um, it is unlikely you're going to be doing the same thing uh, 10 years from now that you're doing now, um, just because I think the industries are changing and technology is changing and certain processes are being automated, but other new opportunities are being created. And I think, I think asking questions and being interested in what other people are doing and um, is, is, is good for you. And it, it, I think it's a, a good way to live your life generally, um, to ask people about, you know, how that works and whether that makes sense and why it makes sense and, and not to be, uh, I think, I think a lot of people are reluctant to ask questions because it makes them feel like maybe they should know things that um, rather than ask. And I think getting over that is important. I think people who are smart and confident tend to ask a lot of questions. And I think it shows mm-hmm. um, that you're you're somebody who's interested in what other people are doing, but also that you're humble enough to recognize when you don't know things. Um, so it's I think it's a good way to help clients. I mean, I'm in a client client service business and getting to know our clients' business is really important for us to be able to help them. Uh, And so, you know, I would encourage everybody to, to stretch a little. I think, you know, AI for some people is, you know, is viewed as being technical. I don't have that kind of technical background and you don't need it for, at least for what I do. Um, Nothing that we do is, that complicated. We're not, you know, we're not, we're not splitting atoms or anything. A lot of it's <laughs> jargon. Um, you ask the right questions and you read some materials and you can probably understand most of, of these issues pretty quickly. So that's a great segue into advice you have for those interested in working in law and AI. And I think that you may be being a little humble here too and saying none of this that you do is that complicated, right? But for those who want to combine the two, whether they're coming from an AI background and want to add in the law background or they're coming from a law and want to add in, what advice do you have for merging those two worlds together? So, and I think you don't need to be a lawyer to be doing like the ethics and compliance issues with respect to AI. Uh, And I think it's a a very important and emerging area. Uh, And I think what I found is that most of the people, almost everybody involved in this have, you know, are acting in good faith and want to do the right thing. And so it's really about, um, working with people and talking to people, as I said, and, and, and being creative and finding ways to get to yes, right. To say, yeah, we, you know, I understand what you want to do. We're going to be able to do it. We might have to, you know, add this control or this procedure or do this task, but, you know, being quite, um, I think 
positive about what AI can do and anticipating criticisms and, and planning for them and putting in measures in place that will address those criticisms is, is, is what I do. And I think for people who are interested in this area, I think treating AI like you treat any other risk for an organization, it's, it's not good or bad. Like, I mean, what I tell people is AI is like email, right? <laughs> it's not necessarily good or bad. It's a tool. Some people use it for good. Some people use it for bad. And it's complicated in terms of exactly, and we're just learning how to use it for the first time. So it's AI is like email was, you know, back in 1998, right? And everyone's trying mm-hmm. to figure out how to use it. But there's a, a lot of amazing uses and and it, it's good to be part of the people who are finding the right use cases and implementing it in a responsible way. Yes, I couldn't agree more. It's all how we use it. So, you know, we may talk some about the negative sides and the risks, right, that we need to mitigate. But now that you've come into the world of AI, what makes you most excited about this space and really the future of it and where it's going to take us? Uh, so, I mean, the reason I'm in this space and the reason I'm really excited about it is I think there's a lot of energy of, you know, people of all ages who are excited at the prospect of using AI to solve the problems that, uh, it's being accused in some places of causing, right? So mm-hmm. yes, there's some risk of bias with respect to AI, but AI used properly can get rid of a lot of the bias that exists in traditional decision-making. And AI can properly use to identify people who deserve credit, who aren't getting credit, who deserve insurance, who aren't getting insurance, who should be interviewed for jobs, who aren't getting interviews. And so I think, and there's a lot of advantages for, you know, automating mundane tasks and making things more efficient and creating, you know, opportunities for people um, to unlock uh, some of the value of data. But to me, at its core, you know, humans make terrible decisions a lot of time, right? And so, you know, AI doesn't have to be perfect in its decision making. To the extent we can make it better than humans in some places and humans can use the AI for them to make better decisions and we can use it to make sure that biases and, and, and um, discrimination and other things that can creep in unconsciously or consciously to decision-making is being checked by AI. That is, is an incredible opportunity. And I think that's the promise of AI. And I think working in this space is, is an opportunity to help businesses and be efficient and all these other things. But it really is, I think, an opportunity to make a difference in terms of opportunities that people get and improving overall decision-making. Yeah, I couldn't agree more in this space. I also think it's a big opportunity for just an inclusive conversation as well, right? We need people from all different, not only gender and ethnicity coming into the space, but walks of life and professions. And I think it's a really inclusive opportunity here, but also is exciting, as you mentioned, to think that, 
yeah, we may cause some harm along the way, but it also gives us the opportunity to mitigate that harm and risk with the same tools we use to create it. So lots of opportunity and excitement in this space. Yeah. And look, I mean, we have a very diverse team that um, we work with and diversity in terms of everything, in terms of yeah. race and gender and ethnicity and socioeconomic backgrounds and, and, and national origin and so forth. And I mean, that's true for everything, but for AI in particular, I think having a diverse team makes a huge difference because, you know, how AI impacts people and places where it can have unforeseen negative impacts is hard to figure out comprehensively unless you have a lot of ranges of experience and you don't really get that unless you build a pretty diverse team. And even within the organizations, we like to have people from risk and legal and compliance and the business and security and so forth, just so they can all have a voice and, you know, what are we worried about here? What, what, where could things go wrong? It's just very hard to see around corners for a small group of people um, without, you know, a broad range of experiences. I love it. Well, you heard it here. It sounds like we all need to go make some friends in other areas and departments and start asking some really good questions and humble ourselves with our, the questions we ask. So this has been a fantastic conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to join us and share your knowledge and expertise. And I look forward to having you again and stay in touch. Great. Thank you so much. Um, it was a pleasure being here. Happy to come back anytime. Awesome. Well, signing off for today, everybody. Remember to stay curious and creative, and we will talk soon. Thanks so much for tuning in to another episode of the Data Bytes podcast. If you're looking for more resources to further your data career or find your tribe, we encourage you to become a member at womenindata.org. See you on the other side.